slaves in reverence, fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who do good and conscience, but also to those who are harsh. For it's commendable of if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering, because they are of conscience of God. But how is it if you credit if you, to your credit if you receive beating for doing wrong and endure it? For if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. This is committed, he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. We may be blessed by the reading of God's word. You may be seated this morning. It's been several weeks, almost two months, since we uh, were in First Peter chapter uh, two. So let me kind of catch us up to speed if you haven't been with us and if you haven't been with us through this study of first Peter first Peter what we have been looking at uh, since we started back in September is this idea grace over disgrace that in our disgrace has fallen uh, people that the grace of God had to come into our lives uh, to redeem us. And so we've been kind of wandering our way through uh, verse by verse through this book of first Peter. We left off before we went into our Advent uh, season in uh, December. We left off right in the middle of this idea of of submission, that God, as believers, we are to submit. And so we've been walking through what submission looks like. And this morning, we will look at godly submission in part two. And so what does it mean for us as believers to submit? I want to say this as a tagline for this morning. It's not a very uh, enjoyable tagline. It's not something I think you're going to go out and you're going to put on a bumper sticker or write in a card. But here is the theme of this morning, that when we have godly submission, there will always be persecution. And so if we live godly lives, the promise is there will be persecution. We see that uh, in uh, we are called in first uh, second Corinthians chapter six to be servants of God. And as servants of God, what happens? He tells us, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, chapter 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, the only way to live a godly life is through submission to God. And so if you desire this morning to live a godly life, here's the promise that Paul tells us. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life. If you're a believer, my hope for you this morning is you you desire a godly life, that you desire to walk with the Lord. And in walking with the Lord, that has to come through submission. There's no way for me to walk with the Lord without submission. We looked at that uh, over a year ago when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, that the Sermon on the Mount is all about believers living under 
the, the mission of God or submission. And so we are to live in submission to God as godly life. And then he says this, there will be persecution. Second so Timothy 2, 3 says this, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And so that's where we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to look at what does it look like for us to submit, but also then what does it look like for us to suffer? If we are to submit and there will be suffering, then we need to know what it looks like for you and to I to live in suffering. How do we live godly lives in suffering? So let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 18. The first thing that we see is this in chapter 18. Uh, chapter 2 verse 18 he says this Peter says this servants be subjected to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle but also the unjust the first thing that we see is a call of submission right there's that word the very first word is servant and that word servant we can in America think of slave and and when we think of slave we, we think of uh, the, the harshness of what slaves meant. This word and that word are totally two different words. What this word slave meant is a, a, a housekeeper or a house taker. That they were living in the house under their slave and they were well provided for it. They weren't uh, treated harshly in this day and age. And yet they lived in submission to their master. And we'll see that what happens when we live in submission under those who do good to us, but also those who don't do good to us, do, who harm us. So the first thing is this. What does it mean for us to live in submission? Or what does it mean to be subject? That's what he says. Uh, the second two words. Servants, be in subjection to your master. The word subject means this, to line up under. And so for us, he's saying to us as believers, he's saying to this group of people that you are to live under. That's what the word submission lives submission to live under a mission and so for you and i do we live under a mission that god has given to us he goes on to say this how are we to live under submission with what all respect that word respect means with great fear and so do you and do i do we live under god's submission with this great fear or this great reverence my fear is for us especially in America, the American church, no longer lives in submission, and we definitely don't live under fear. We don't fear the Lord the way God has taught us through His Word, but it's because we don't live under His submission. We are not submitting ourselves to God's mission, therefore we don't really fear the Lord any longer. And so Peter is telling us to live under God's authority and live under God's authority with great fear, with great reverence, with great trembling. Uh, not fear, uh, well, my dogs don't fear me, but the way most dogs fear owners, uh, I, I treat them like children, which is a mistake to begin with. Uh, but most people, uh, when their dog, I don't mean cower, but they, the dogs live under a great deal of respect for their owner. Maybe I need to take some notes on how to do with my two animals. <clears throat> and remember, they're just animals. But God is calling us to live under as subjects to him, the master, with a great deal of fear and then he says this with those who are good and those who are harsh i think it's easy for us to live in submission when god is good but what happens when god isn't providing what we think we need do we live under that same submission or for you at, at your workplace 
it's real easy to work for a good boss. It's real easy to work and be submission, submitted under a good boss. But what happens when God places us with a boss that doesn't treat us well? God is saying in this text, we are to live no different between the two. It's not the boss that's the problem. It's my heart that's the problem if I'm not living under submission. Because ultimately what we looked at a few months ago was that God has placed all authority over us. And so God is the ultimate authority. And so if I look at just my boss as the authority, I don't look at God as the authority, then, then my heart is in the wrong place. And so God is saying to us, hey, remember in the previous text, he says, remember, I'm the one that has put uh, everyone under submission that everyone is under my control and so when you and I work for a boss that's harsh we are to live the same way and to be in submission the same way as if we work for a good boss I'm I'm moving along quickly through these first two points because the the last three points are what are primary for us in this text today so God's called us to live in submission in verse 18 now what's the motivation for our Submission, we see that in verse 19 through 21. For this is a gracious thing. What is the gracious thing? When we live under submission, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit it, if it is, if when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure it. But if when you do good and suffer for it, endure it. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So the the next thing that we see is our motivation for our submission. What Peter tells us is it is a good thing when we come under submission. That is a gracious thing to the Lord. We know this from uh, James chapter chapter 1, verse 2. He says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, when you meet sufferings of all kinds. You consider it, pure joy pure it's the graciousness of the lord is what peter tells us for you know that the testing of your your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing here's what john MacArthur has to say about this idea of submission he says whenever believers encounter trials on the job that's what he's talking about, that's what Peter's talking about. They ought to view them as opportunities for spiritual growth and evangelism. The chief reason God allows believers, that's the Christian, that's you and me today, if you've trusted in Christ, to remain in this world is so that he, God, might use us, the believer, them, to win the loss and therefore bring glory to his name. Those who suffer with the right attitude will be blessed in this life and honored later in the Lord's presence. And so for us, our motivation to suffer and to suffer well is because it's a gracious thing to the Lord that God is allowing us to suffer and it's how will we suffer out loud with other people. What, what, what Peter says, what MacArthur is saying here is it's an opportunity for us to be salt and light into the world, even in our suffering. Well, see, this isn't one of those messages that uh, are probably going to get downloaded a lot and listened to a lot, but we must suffer well. Because God is using our suffering not only for our sanctification, but the hope is 
for the salvation of other people. That how the world looks at us through our suffering, maybe the world, those who don't know Christ, will look on us as it is to us to suffer well, and in our suffering well, they'll come to know Jesus Christ. And so our motivation is that we must remember it's a gracious thing to the Lord to suffer. Now that doesn't sound, uh, you're not going to find that in a card. That's not a feel-good message. But our suffering is a gracious thing when we suffer well. And so God's called us to submission. God's called us to suffering. And so what does that look like for us? What is our standard for suffering? So it's going to happen. If you live a godly life, you will suffer. No amens on that one, I see. But you and I, if I live out a holy life in a lost world, I will suffer for it. And so for us this morning, what is our standard for suffering? Because if I don't have a standard for suffering, I'll wander about aimlessly and not know how I'm to suffer. Right? You, I just said, we need to suffer well. What does it look like to suffer well? Or there is a standard for suffering. Let's read verses 21 through 23. For to this you have been called. Highlight that in your Bible. To what you have been called. To submit and to suffer. If you live a godly life, this is your call on your life, is to submit and to suffer. And here's the standard. Because... Highlight that in your Bible this morning. Because why? Christ also suffered for you. Leave an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. So our standard is this. Christ is our standard. Let's look at two words. And then we're going to look at five things. Or how we are to suffer well in this text. The first word we see is this says because christ also suffered leaving you circle this in your bible an example the word example means this to write under there's a picture uh, that will come up on the screen i hope perfect this is what it looks like it means to trace an example means to trace this is uh, one of those things that every elementary school kid brings home and so every uh, elementary school learns how to write their letters they have a piece of paper that they're tracing over and over and over and over again. I, I can't tell you how many times Tennyson has brought this piece of paper home and traced her letters over and over again. And what Christ is saying through us, through Peter this morning, is I am that example. Continue to trace your life over and over and over around me. Take him and put him on that piece of paper and put your life on top of that and trace your life over his life over and over and over again. He is the example how to suffer. And not only that, he says this, not only am I the example, not only trace your life around me, but he says this, that you might what? Follow in my steps. Last year, didn't do it this year with the snows, Way too cold at three degrees. I was not going outside. Uh, being from Florida, it needs to go about 50, and that's the max. That's the lowest it needs to go. So when I woke up last Sunday and it was 
three degrees, I thought my phone was broken. I hit it a couple of times, like, no, that's, that's not broken. But last year, when it snowed, if you remember the snow, uh, Tennis and I, I told this story last year, uh, but it fits right in the example. She and I, what? We went and followed footsteps. And she and I started at the front of the parsonage, and we walked the, uh, as a ton of this property, following the footsteps of animals to see where those animals would go. And what God is telling us through Peter is that we are to follow after Christ's footsteps. You see, the beautiful part about suffering is that there's already one who suffered on our behalf, and he has paved the way for us. You see, when Tennyson and I last year, we, we, would, we were tracing all these steps, all the tracks in the animals. Who was leading the way? It wasn't Tennyson. Her little feet were not going to do anything in that snow. I had to go before her and tamp down the snow with my size 13 foot so that it would be easier for her to walk behind me. Now, let let me say that again, easier. She still had to struggle through the snow. And so God, through Christ Jesus, has set the example and set the way to which we were to go and patted down the snow, if you will, to make it easy, but it's still not uh, without difficulty. I've got to struggle through this life in my suffering, and so do you do. But there is a standard that we now have, Christ himself. Peter tells us five things uh, about how Christ suffered. It comes strictly out of uh, Isaiah chapter 52, one of the most amazing chapters uh, in the the Bible uh, uh, for me. These are five things, and then we're going to turn over to Isaiah 52, verse 13. The first thing that we see as our standard for suffering is this. That though when Christ suffered, what does it say? He committed no sin. Think about that. Through all that Christ went through, he committed no sin. Through all the suffering that Christ went through, he committed no sin. I'm going to read these and then we're going to go to Isaiah. The second thing it says in uh, this text is this. That neither was deceit found on his mouth. The third thing, that no rival, no criticism was returned to those who were criticizing him. I'm guilty as charged on that one when it comes uh, to submission and to uh, being under people's authority. I, I won't be critical in front of their face because I don't want to get fired but man behind my boss's back it could be bad news the fourth thing he did not threaten while being suffered and the fifth thing we see is this he continued to entrust himself to God through his suffering let's flip over to Isaiah chapter 52 I want to read this text in memory of what we just saw in Peter Isaiah 52, verse 13. We'll read all the way through 53, verse 13. This is God speaking on behalf of His Son, Jesus. He says this, Behold, my servant, this is Jesus, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, 
His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Think about that, what we just read. He was so beaten on our behalf, so abused for us, suffered so much that you could not even tell he was a man. And yet it says this, no sin was found in his mouth. No deceit was found in his mouth. He didn't return criticism for criticism. You remember in, uh, in the courtyard when they were beating on Jesus and they stuck a crown of thorn on his head and then beat the crown of thorns into his head. They mocked him for being the king of the Jews and he said nothing. Said nothing. And that beating happened over and over and over and over again and yet he said nothing in his suffering. And his form beyond that of a child of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For what which he has been told to them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who's believed that he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is Jesus now. He grew up before them like a young plant, like a young root out in dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him or no beauty that we should desire. He, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. Think about that verse in line of our suffering. He knows suffering. That is one of the great promises for me in this text. That no matter where you are in your life, that Christ has been there and he's suffered unjustly. And so he knows what it means for us, his children, to suffer unjustly. And he gives us the example how we are to suffer unjustly. Let's continue to read. And as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement brought, that brought us peace. Look at those two words, pierced and crushed. You talk about suffering. I've never been pierced and I've never been crushed. It feels like it at times. But Jesus Christ submitted to God the Father and in his submission, he was crushed and he was pierced. He knew suffering and knew suffering well. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he not opened his mouth. Here's the analogy that Isaiah gives. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Think about that, that analogy. Like a lamb led to to a slaughter that was christ for you and to me he was led to be slaughtered for you and i and said nothing 
by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered him that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of many of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Here's the beauty of it. And yet it was the will of the Father to crush him. It was the will of God that Christ would suffer. And I ask you this question, and I ask myself studying this week this. What is God's will in my suffering? If God's will was to crush his own son to suffer, then there has to be a reason that I go through my suffering as well. It was as he put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, we shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. and He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. That is suffering. And was numbered with the transgression, the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and made intercessions for the transgressors. That is our standard for suffering. You think just for a moment all that Christ went through. Here's the next point as we transition. Not only is he our standard, but he has become our substitute for our suffering. You see, because if Christ never became our substitute in our suffering, what, what, is, what is it said about us? If Christ never became our substitutionary atonement, then we would have to pay all that Christ did for us on the cross. So he suffered for us so that we would not have to suffer though we suffer now. There is a suffering as believers that we no longer have to suffer because of his substitutionary atonement for you and for me. That's what he tells us, Peter tells us in these next few verses. Chapter uh, 24, verse 24. He committed nothing. He walked with the Lord. He committed himself. How come? Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might not die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. That is a great promise. That is a great promise. That we have the ultimate one that suffered for us. That we look to as how to suffer. And then we understand what his suffering did for us. So when I suffer, if I remember what Christ suffered for, he relieved me of having to go through all that he went through, as Isaiah put it. There is a suffering that you and I no longer have to suffer. Think about that for a moment. You see, the the, the most wicked form of suffering for anyone is the unbeliever who will spend eternity apart from Christ. 
And if you've placed your hope and faith in Christ, you no longer have to suffer that. Not because of anything you've done, but because of everything Christ has done on your behalf on the cross is what Peter tells us. Because of his suffering, you get to live a righteous life. Because of his suffering, you get to live a sinless life. Do we understand the implications of that? Here's what one writer says about this idea of the substitutionary atonement. Redemption is substitutionary. That is what Christ did. That is what the word redemptive means. He redeemed you from hell into heaven. He redeemed you from having to suffer all of eternity to have to suffer none in eternity. For it means that Christ paid the price that we could not pay. Paid it in our stead. And we go free. Justification interprets our salvation judiciously. And as the New Testament sees it, Christ took our legal liability. He took our stead. Reconciliation means that making of people to be at one by taking the way of the cause of hostility. In this case, the cause of sin. And Christ removed that cause from us. We could not deal with sin. He could and did. And did it in such a way that it has reckoned us to us. Propitiation points us to removal of the divine wrath. And God has done this by bearing the wrath for us. It was our sin which drew it down, the wrath. Yet, it was he who bore it, the wrath. Was there a price to be paid? He paid it. Was there victory to be won? He won it. Was there penalty to be borne? He bore it. Was there judgment to face? He faced it. Amen. So when we suffer, we can look to Christ Jesus who suffered on our behalf so that we would not have to do those things, that we would not have to pay a price, that we would not have to win a victory because that victory has already been won, that we would not have to face judgment, that we would not have to take the full wrath of God on us. Do you realize the implications of what this means for us as believers? That because Christ suffered, you no longer have to suffer under the wrath of God. That is huge for us. Because Christ suffered it on the cross. What does it mean when he says he bore our sin? He carried the weight of it. That word bore means to carry the weight. Your sin and my sin is heavy. And if you think about it in your life and in my life, when I go around with unconfessed sin in my life, it is weighty and exhausting. And yet because of Christ's substitutionary atonement for us, I no longer have to carry the weight because the weight has been carried and lifted for me because of Christ's suffering. Amen? So just for a moment, think about what Christ has carried on your behalf. If you're here this morning and you've suffered any kind of sin or committed any kind of sin, Christ carries that weight for you. Addiction weight, Christ carries it. Adultery, Christ carries it. Fornication, Christ carries it. Drunkenness, Christ carries it. Abortion, Christ carries it. 
and on and on and on and on we can go. Christ bore your sin so that you would not have to suffer. You see, that's the greatest words for me in the New Testament. Those three words that are found in John 19.30. When he cried out in that moment right before he went and died, he says, it is finished. That's what he's talking about. Your sin is finished because of the cross. My sin is finished because it is finished because of Christ's suffering on that cross. Just for the sake of time, one more quote. It's going to take us to Romans. You can, in your study this week, look at Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 11. It talks about all that creation, uh, uh, it groans for because of sin. And then it says, because of what Christ suffered, that now creation is set free and you and I are set free. But this is what one writer says. Union with Christ in his death and resurrection does not change only believers standing before God who declares them righteous since their sin has been paid for and removed from them, but it, gives, it also changes their nature. They're not only justified, but sanctified, transformed sinners into saints because of Christ's suffering. You're no longer a sinner, but you are a saint. Let that soak in for us. You see, it goes on to say this. That we would die to our sin that because Christ died for us. The reason that Christ died, it says this in that last half of verse 24. That you can live to, in your righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. You see, as a believer this morning, you live a righteous not life. Not because of anything of you've done, but because of everything that he's done. And because of his wounds, you are healed. And so that means even this moment, that today, if you are suffering, there is healing in the midst of your suffering. Not because of what you've done, but because of what's done on your behalf. And the last one is this. It ties these two ideas together in verse 25. For you, we're straying like sheep. That's what happens in our sin. In our sin, we stray. From the Lord. And then he says this. Peter says this. But you have now returned. That word return. We can think of it as. You've now repented. That's what repented is. I'm going this way. Away from the great shepherd. And I know I'm going the wrong way. And I return or repent. And what happens in our repentance. It says this. You repent to what? The shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Think of all the words that he could have used there. That you return to your owner, that you return to your master, that you return to, you fill in the blank, but the words that Peter chose. You see, sheep are owned by people. Sheep have owners, sheep have masters. But that's not the words he used. He used two words. You return to your shepherd and you return to your overseer. The word shepherd means this. The feeder, the leader, the protector, the restorer, the nurturer, the caregiver. You return to your caregiver. And then he says this, not only do you return to them, you return to your overseer. You see, overseer and shepherd are two different words. 
An overseer is one uh, uh, of the word guardian. So you have a shepherd that cares for the flock, but then you have the guardian that watches over all of it. And he says what? You have a shepherd and an overseer of what? Your soul. So when it comes for us to suffer, we have one that suffered on our behalf. It tells us in the New Testament that, that, that Christ can have compassion for us because in every way that we suffered, he suffered and then some. And yet, in his suffering, he remained sinless. There was no deceit ever found in his mouth. And he set the example for us how we are to suffer. In closing, I'd say this. How do we suffer? We suffer because Christ suffered for us. We suffer in remembrance of all that Christ has done for us, but we do so the same way that Christ did. We do so because he went to God, because it was God's will for him to suffer. Remember, he says this in verse 18. For this is a gracious thing when you suffer, mindful of God. One endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. It says this, For it is this that you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. And then lastly, my hope and prayer and charge for us this morning is this, that while you're suffering, you would continue to entrust yourself the same way that Christ entrusted himself to the one who judges justly in your suffering? Are you committing yourself to God the way Christ Jesus did? Because Christ Jesus knew that the plan was for him to suffer. You remember in the garden, that wasn't his plan. That's not what he wanted to do. But he submitted his will and his life under God's care in that moment in the garden. Because he understood that God had a bigger mission. And that bigger mission was that Christ Jesus would suffer for you and for, uh, for me so that we would have what the, the word of God says, reconciliation. So that I, who was once far from God because of God, Christ's suffering, become near to God. And just maybe this morning, in your suffering, God wants to use you in your suffering to reconcile lost people to himself. The same way that he did Christ Jesus. Will we suffer well? Will we suffer well? Remember, we have the greatest one who suffered as an example for us. Let us pray. Christ, you were the ultimate one when it came to submission. You were a great model for submission. But Christ Jesus didn't just stop at submission. You are the greatest model and example for how to suffer and to suffer well. God, I pray if there's anyone in here this morning, in this moment, they're disheartened. They're discouraged. They feel if you're far away because of their suffering. I pray this morning that through your Holy Spirit, you'd speak to them. When you would make that promise, God, for us as believers to live a godly life, we must suffer. We must be persecuted. There will be persecution. 
And so, God, I pray for the one that is living a godly life. And because of that godly life, there is persecution. God, I also pray for the man or woman in here that is facing persecution and facing suffering without you. God, there's no way for them to overcome suffering without you. And I pray this morning they'd place their hope and their faith in you, Jesus Christ, who suffered on our behalf so that we would not ultimately have to face the wrath of God. And God, this is a scary thing to pray, but I pray for us here at Powell's Chapel. I pray that every one of us this year would have a strong desire to live a godly life. And God, that we, the church, because of that, will face persecution. And so, God, I do pray for godliness. And as a result of that godliness, I pray for persecution. I pray that as we come into this new year, that this new year would be marked with godliness and persecution, but also marked with a remembrance of all that you've done for us. You are a good God who redeems us and sets us free because of the suffering of Christ Jesus. Go with us today. Allow these words to marinate in our heart this afternoon. And pray this in Christ's powerful name. Amen. Let's stand as we